0: let's talk about sex. Well, I had to get your attention somehow and that seems to do it. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're in this series. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's rather uh, subtle. It's called Unholy Ideas About Holy Matrimony. And uh, tonight I wanted to speak about um, a sexual activity outside of marriage. By the way, uh, just about everyone's doing it. Did you know that? Uh, Almost every statistical survey, almost every credible uh, analysis of the day indicates that almost every, the vast majority of people have had sexual relations uh, prior to marriage. Uh, My guess is that's true of many, if not most, even in here uh, 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 tonight. And so what's really happening today sadly, I think, even amongst Christians, is that premarital uh, sex is becoming what some call the new norm. It's just statistically now normal. It's not aberrant behavior at all. Everyone's doing it. So I have this theory. I don't think everyone, specifically Christians, I don't think everyone starts out believing that uh, a sexual relations outside of the confines of marriage is right. I don't think, I think most start out believing it isn't right, but then something happens along the way. Bear with me just for a second. Did you know that God made us with something we could call a need for consistency? It's just part of human nature. It's a wonderful thing that is built into our system. And that sort of means that you can't believe one thing and do something contrary to it for too long. Something has to give. You're just miserable and upset. You state a belief, a conviction. But if you're violating it for too long, it's going to wear you out emotionally. And something has to give to resolve the inconsistency. But you only have two options. It's either your belief system that has to be renovated or your behaviors have to change. And what's happening for most Christians and others who are participating in premarital sex is that their uh, conduct doesn't change. The belief system changes so that even Christians come to defend the practice, which once they would have defined as being, frankly, immoral. So those who at the outset would say this is not right, this is wrong, are now saying this is right. What's happened? The inconsistency between conviction and conduct is being resolved not by changes in conduct, but by changing in conviction. And so what's happening is most people today engaged in sexual relations outside of marriage are redefining morality. That's what they're doing. And and, and they weren't raised that way. They, They don't actually believe it, but they're redefining morality. Now, morality, that is what's right, what's wrong, is an interesting kind of thing, you see. Did you know most today do not believe there are any across the board for all time standards of rightness and wrongness. Did you know that? We can call that absolute standards of right and wrong. Uh, Very few people believe in that anymore. Did you know that? And so to form one's sense of morality, people are doing other things. For instance, an international survey of college seniors was done. Uh, And it revealed an interesting result. Seventy-three percent of the college seniors who responded said, when their professors, this is across the world, when their professors taught on the subject of morality, what's right, what's wrong, 73% 73% of the students said the professors never, ever, ever suggested that there are absolute standards of what's right and what's wrong. 73% of college seniors across the, the uh, world are being taught that there isn't an absolute moral code. Well, if there isn't, how do you get your morality? How do, how do you get yours? How do people today get their sense of what's right and What's wrong? Well, in many ways, uh, one of the most popular today is whatever the majority thinks is right. That's what's right. If the majority is doing it, it's right. Others say uh, when we try to determine what's right and what's wrong, uh, you have to be flexible. You see, because as the culture changes, so too should our should our sense of what's right and what's wrong change. You have to be flexible. Uh, Others say, you know what morality is? Morality is what's right for you. It's called the utilitarian definition of morality, meaning if it has utility for me, if it works, if it meets my needs, it's right on that basis. So if living together and if becoming sexual outside of marriage is meeting, say, the economic needs of the couple or the emotional needs of the participants, then it becomes right, you see? So that's a definition of, of morality. What all of these attempts at defining morality have in common is that they are based on a presupposition, which I believe is quite unfounded. And here's the presupposition. It is that people are inherently good. We are inherently good. That's the presupposition upon which all non-biblical codes of morality are based. See, we are good. Therefore, whatever notion of morality we come up with will be good because we're good. But that's not borne out by, that is not only an unfounded presupposition, it's an unbiblical presupposition. Did you know that? You know what the Bible says about uses? It says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, 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 the Bible says we have been conceived in sin. That means that right from the outset, that's our nature. We didn't go bad, we is bad. The Bible says both our hearts and our minds are corrupted. It says we're blinded in our understanding. It says our minds are darkened. You know what the Bible says? It says there are ways which seem right to us, but as they play out, the conclusion of that which we're so convinced is right is death. That's what the Bible says. So, so... Where do we go then for a sense of uh, ultimately what's right and what's wrong? Don't you think we should consult the giver of life? Am I missing something here? That just seems so logical to me. Don't you think we should consult the moral code of the giver of life whose heart is not corrupt and whose mind is untainted should not we consult the creator of life who knows what's right (laughs) and who values what's right should not we look to the moral standards of the one who gave us life and knows best how to live out our our lives That's not a blind leap from logic to faith. That's very logical to me. And folks, in consulting God's word on the subject of morality, we find a very objective code of ethics. It's objective because it's outside of us. If it's inside of us and emanates from our corrupt heart and darkened thoughts, it becomes a very subjective code of ethics. If it's outside of us, if it emanates from God, it becomes quite objective. It's given to us by God and based upon what he knows. And the last time I checked, he knows everything. He's all-knowing. He's not limited in any way whatsoever. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. If you do not have, God's standard of what's right and wrong, God's code of ethics, God's statement on morality, I'm going to tell you something right now. You're going to have no reason not to avoid having premarital sex. You're going to do it. I'm going to tell you. Why? Because if you don't have God's moral mooring point, you're going to have to take your cues from the morality of the culture. And the morality of the culture says, if it feels good, what? Yeah, and everyone's doing it. So I have to tell you, I don't think there's a lick of hope for you or me. If we dismiss God's objective moral code and think through stuff, it seems right, it feels good, I'm not hurting anyone, two consenting adults, we're going to get married anyway. That all makes sense to me. Why? Because my mind is is as messed up as yours. That's why. If we don't have God's external objective standard of morality, I'm telling you, everyone's going to sleep together. Both before and even outside of marriage. I'm just telling you. By the way, it's already happening. So you know what the real question of tonight's discussion is? It's this. What is the basis of your morality? If your answer is the Word of God, then you're probably persuaded that the Word of God calls sex outside of marriage sin. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed, a euphemism for sexual relations, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators, boy, we hate that word. That means people who sleep together before marriage. And adulterers, ooh, we don't like that one. Those are people who sleep together with someone they're not married to. God will judge. So if your moral compass emanates from the objective word of God, I hope you're clear about this sex between a husband and And his wife is the only form and framework of sex which God approves of. That's it. Look no stinking further. Stop watching what's going on on TV and comparing yourself to your fellow students, workmates, and everybody else. If you're taking your... That's why I ask you, what is the base... Where are you looking for your moral authority? If it's peers, (laughs) if it's politicians... If it's Hollywood, you're dead in the water. I know which way you're going. But if you say my moral compass is the word of God, then be clear about this. The only acceptable framework for sexual activity is in the context of marriage. That's it. That's what it says. Now, Paul wrote some of the Bible. You've heard about him? And he had things to say about sex and marriage to a group of... uh, Rough, renegade Christians living in a place called Corinth. First, he told them, staying single is a good idea if you can handle it. He actually talks to them about uh, the blessedness of being single, though it's lonely. He speaks about how one could be fully devoted to the Lord Jesus, undistracted by other responsibilities and so on. But he said, it's not for everybody. And for those... Uh, who are not finding God's grace so as to remain single, he had something to say. He said this to the Corinthians. Here's what he said. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. Each woman is to have her own husband. That's marriage. You know what Paul said? You have two options with regard to your sexual inclinations and passions. One is marriage. The other is immoralities. Premarital sexual relations, extramarital, those are called immoralities. Someone told me the other day, the Bible nowhere uses the term premarital sex as being a negative. Yeah, but that's true. Every time the Bible uses the term immorality, as in this context, it's talking about premarital sex. Because Paul is insinuating quite clearly here, any sexual encounter except that between a man and his wife, a wife and her husband, is called immorality. Sexual immorality. Listen, he makes this even more clear in verses 8 and 9 of First Corinthians 7. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I. We don't know if Paul was unmarried all of his life, but we uh, can imply Paul was unmarried at the time of this writing, single. It's good for those who are unmarried and widows, he said, to remain even as I am, single. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. Why? Because it's better to marry than to burn. No, not in hell. Burn with passion, sexual passion that cannot be righteously satisfied because the only framework in which our sexual passions can be righteously satisfied is in the context of marriage. So there's no question, folks, whatsoever, that the Bible, if it's your referent for moral behavior, if it is, maybe it's not, but if it is, then you better be sure that the Bible does not equivocate on this. It says quite clearly, one is not to have sex outside of marriage. But there is this question. Did the one who said not to have sex outside of marriage, did that one have authority to say that? See, that's the question, isn't it? If you are a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, your answer has to be yes. He has authority to say that. Listen, if you call yourself a Christian but are still under your self-rule instead of the Savior's rule, you are violating the law of consistency. You're living inconsistently. You are professing to be under the rule of the king of kings. But you're on the throne of your life. You're calling the shots. How long do you think that's going to last? You're going to fall apart. You're going to have to resolve the dilemma. And one possible way is to drift even further and further away from Christ. If you're a Christian, the Christ has the authority to call the shots. Becoming a Christian is not just a matter of uttering some words. It starts that way, and the evidence that those words are an honest reflection of what's on your heart is a change in lifestyle. And if you profess to know Christ, <laughs> but there's no evidence of a transformed life, there's good reason to believe you don't know Christ. Whose moral authority are you operating under? By the way, it may come as a surprise to some, maybe many in here, um, to know that God came up with the idea of sex. Did you know that? That's why I don't mind using the word as I am using it tonight. (laughs) God came up with the idea of sex. Satan did not come up with the idea of sex. Did you know that? You, you, You see, God is the author of all that is good. Satan does not provide anything that's good. God provided sex because it's good. You know what Satan does? He can't provide anything that's good. He spends all his time trying to distort that which is good. Welcome to the world of modern-day sexuality. That is a satanic distortion of what God came up with, the idea of sex, which, which is good. Can you imagine, for instance, how our lives today would be different if we obeyed God's moral code? Think about it. No STDs. Do you know what that is? Sexually transmitted diseases. Could I tell you something? I had no idea what that meant when I grew up. STDs. We don't see we've we've given it initials because we don't even want to say the whole thing. (laughs) There would be no sexually transmitted diseases if we lived by God's moral code. You know what else? There would be no unwanted pregnancies. Know what else? There would be no unwanted pregnancies leading to abortion. You know what else? There would be no unwed moms. You know what else? There would be no children born to parents who don't want them or who are not ready for them. Listen, folks. We're running the experiment of forming our own sense of morality. How are we doing? How's life working out? Not very good, I don't think. Not very good at all. A transcendent, all-knowing, perfectly moral being who inaugurated human life, including human sexuality, certainly knows what's best for us. How dare we think we have a twist on sexuality that's an improvement on God's moral code? Listen, we can be sure Father knows best and we can be sure of something else, it's this. I don't think we understand sex at all. I'll tell you why. Most of us think that sex is a purely physical thing, something you partake of and then are done with in the same sense in which you partake of a double cheeseburger. You consume it and then you're done with it. It's just purely physical activity. Would you allow me to hold off on the Bible for just a second? And let me just tell you what good science says, because I want to show you that good science uh, only affirms uh, the Word of God. So, for instance, what I'm going to share with you is uh, this is not a pastor's deal. This is, this is science. I've just looked it up. In the course of sexual relations, three substances are produced and released. Two are hormones one is something in the brain, is a chemical in the brain. Uh, one of these hormones is called oxytocin. Oxytocin, produced primarily in, uh, by women, in women, in the course of intimacy w- with a partner, a sexual partner, oxytocin. And what does it do? It helps the woman to develop an emotional bond to the man. Fo- folks, in the course of sexuality, uh, sexual experience, It's not just our physical bodies, the world would have us believe that, that are involved. No, it might very well be that the primary sex organ is your brain. The brain is actually changed in the course of sexual relations. This is quite the topic, isn't it? I don't have any slides tonight for obvious reasons. (laughs) These words are bad enough. But that's what happens. Oxytocin is released, and it affects the brain so that a bond of an emotional kind... An affection, a bond, is created between the partners to the sexual relation. Now, there's a, 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 an equivalent kind of hormone that is released by a man. It's called vasopressin. Vasopressin. Same kind of a deal. It's, it's a hormonal experience in the course of sexual relations. Oxytocin for the woman does the same thing as vasopressin in the man. It helps the man to be inclined in the direction of an emotional bond, a connection, a kind of a union that goes beyond merely physical uniting between the the man and and his sexual partner. And then this third substance is called dopamine. Dopamine, it's a neurotransmitter. It's one of those liquids in the brain. One neuron sends a message to another neuron, not on a roadway, but but a liquid pathway called neurotransmitters. Dopamine is one of those. It invigorates, stimulates the pleasure center in the brain. So it, too, dopamine uh, helps the parties to want to have ongoing sexual relationships, that kind of thing. Listen to me. God is good. He has provided oxytocin, vasopressin, dopamine to accelerate and accentuate the emotional bonding between a husband and a wife. But here's the problem. Not only are these three uh, substances, you would call them bonding agents, not only are those activated between partners in a marriage, they can also be engaged and released in sexual activity with partners you're not married to. And this does two very bad things. So many couples who live together, say we're living together and you know we're having sex because we're trying each other on for size, you know, it's kind of like shopping for the right pair of shoes. We don't want to make the marital commitment because, you know, it may not be a good fit. So we're checking each other out, you know what I mean? So here's the problem. Uh, Once you start out the relationship sexually instead of emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and then only later sexually after marriage, once you do that because you want to try each other out, you blow objectivity, Based upon these God-given substances that I just told you about, two hormones and one neurotransmitter, they effectuate an emotional bonding between the parties so that even if you don't fit each other as potential marital partners, now you can't see straight and you end up getting married anyway. I'm telling you, that's what happens. Now, there's a second problem. Uh, When you have sex outside of marriage, and maybe even with more than one partner... Because it's just a physical deal, you know what I mean? Casual sex. If it feels good, do it. That's the attitude of the day. So when you have uh, sex outside of marriage with more than one partner, you, you, what you're doing is you're attaching and then unattaching, and, and you're attaching and you're unattaching again and again. And, and what that process does is it weakens your brain's ability to stay attached. Let me illustrate. See these little stickum? What do you call these things? Stick them. What would you say? You don't have to yell. I'm just asking a question. All right, look. Let me take one of these steels. It's got some sticky stuff on the end. I put it here. Look, it's sticking. I don't like it there. I'll put it here. It's no good. Yeah, put it over here. Listen, I keep doing that. Attach, unattach, attach, unattach, attach. After a while, it loses its capacity to attach. You see? That's what happens to us. Listen to me, folks. God doesn't tell us stuff arbitrarily. I'm learning about the brain. You are. But he knows this. He made it. When he issues a directive, a moral code, it's not to rain on our parade. It's not to get us to jump through some arbitrary whimsical hoops. It's because Father knows best. Doggone it. This stuff has a shelf life if you use it again and again and again, and so do you. So this idea of sex just being a physical kind of a deal you can get in and get out of and you don't leave anything behind is, is sheer and utter nonsense. In fact, you know what all the studies indicate? Those people who have uh, first engaged in premarital sex have a much higher divorce rate later if they marry than those who wait to have sex in marriage. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Well, that's what science says. Science tells us there's no such thing as casual sex. There's more involved than just eating a double cheeseburger for crying out loud. Every time you leave a sexual relationship, you leave a part of yourself behind. But that's science. Now, how about Bible? And by the way, good science only discovers what God has already told us long ago. You understand that? So here's what God already told us before we knew about oxytocin, and vasopressin, all that. I'll tell you what the Bible says. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, Paul is addressing, I told you, this Corinthian culture. It's a culture persuaded that sex was a standalone thing. So what you could do by day, the guys, they could go to the, a temple where they had temple prostitutes. You know what I mean? Kind of like driving through a fast food place. You could pick up a prostitute and have relations with her and, you know, dump her off. And then you just go home at night. And uh, they thought you just resume normal activities. No pain, no gain, nothing lost, no cost. It's to that society that Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Listen, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is One body. One body union with her. For he says, and now Paul quotes way back Genesis 2, the model of marriage. For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Science is discovering there's no such thing as purely physical sexual encounter. There's no such thing as casual sex. Every sexual relationship changes your brain. And God said this, In 1 Corinthians 6, there's a uniting. You leave a piece of yourself with that person you think you just had a one-night stand with. You left a piece of you behind that you can never get back. You can't get it back. In sex, there's there's a kind of uniting of parties. It, It can be severed for sure, but not without cost. And the cost is... You lost a part of you. So it says here in the same text, verse 18, flee immorality. Run from it. Why? Every other sin. I'm not exaggerating. It says right here. Every other. Think of every sin. Think of every non-sexual sin. Think of whatever. Thefts, lying, murders. I don't know what. Every other sin. You know what God is saying through Paul? Paul. Sexual sin, immorality, is in a category of its own. And every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Not all sins are equal in terms of their consequences. God puts sexual sin in a category of its own in this sense. It is a sin against one's own body. In what sense? It takes a toll on the participants like no other sin does. It's a sin against one's own body. In uniting sexually and then deuniting, uniting, deuniting, attaching, detaching, the capacity to bond emotionally with one who may be your spouse later will be impaired. It is an irreversible consequence. Folks, we got to get this. There's no such thing as casual sex. No such thing. Sex is about intimacy. And when you take sex out of the context God designed it for, you impair your intimacy ability. The sex you had was not merely physical. You left a part of you behind. You can never get it back. You hurt yourself. You sinned against your own body. But some may say, it doesn't apply. We're engaged. We're not promiscuous. We're not sleeping around. We're just sleeping with each other. What's wrong with that? Folks, if you are succeeding in justifying your premarital sex, you may be very successful later in justifying your extramarital sex. Because, frankly, the two are in the same category. See, premarital sex minimizes and diminishes the uh, framework of sex. It's supposed to be in marriage. Once you've succeeded in doing that, even when married, why do you want to keep sex in marriage? You see, you're opening up the floodgate to a reframing of sexuality even after marriage. And, by the way, if your fiance shows you no capacity to wait for you before you're married i'd like to know what assurance you have that he or she will wait for you sexually during marriage in the course of marriage a couple has to come away apart from one another for various reasons uh, a, a lady's time and sometimes one of the parties is away on business or something checking into some hotel i'd like to know what assurance you have that your spouse is going to wait for you when he or she manifested no ability to do so. You know, I usually counsel couples even now who are living together and planning on marriage. I say what's done is done, but do you love each other enough to be prepared to give each other a gift on your wedding day? They say, what gift? I say, the gift of having demonstrated a capacity to wait for each other. So even if the wedding is a month from now, would you be willing to not live together? during? Oh, no, economically, economically. economics prevail over the objective transcendent moral code of almighty God and you call yourself a Christian come on which is it going to be so I usually counsel the couple what's done is done but from now on when you walk down the aisle when he shows up at least give each other some time frame. It's a gift in which you say, look, I've demonstrated the discipline, the self-control by God's grace. I allowed myself to be filled by his spirit. I confessed sin. I repented. I no longer quenched the spirit. And I asked him to give me a capacity to wait on you. And, and he has. I'm going to tell you something. You're going to need that in the course of being married. You're going to need it. So, uh, hmm. What if you're engaged, you love each other, you've got a wedding planned and all the rest, and you just can't keep your hands off one another? Well, God has a solution for you. It's two words. Get married. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Again, that does not mean burn with hell. It means to burn with passions, sexual passions that cannot be righteously satisfied. Satisfy the passions righteously. Get married. See, Paul Paul doesn't say, hey, you know, it's really tough. You love each other, you know what I mean? And you're planning on getting hitched up and all the rest. And it's really, really tough. You're sitting on the couch late at night. He's not going home. You're not going home. You're hugging, you're smooching, you're doing all kinds of stuff. you got music flowing in the background. you got all... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Paul says, well, I can understand that's rough. And therefore, God's provision is just go for the gusto, have sex. No, it doesn't say that. It says if you don't have self-control, let them marry. That's the option. Can I tell you something? It doesn't make any sense to me to be engaged for two years. I don't get this. Now, I'm saying all kinds of offensive stuff tonight. But, uh, uh, see here's the deal. To me, the purpose of the engagement period is simply to provide enough time to plan the wedding. That is it. I mean, if you're not committed enough to one another that you need a long engagement period to figure it out, then don't get engaged. Just date. Because here's the deal. Once you get engaged, you're starting to feel married. You're talking about finances and vocations and where you're going to live and Christmas time. You're going to your parents and my parents. Well, I don't want to go to your parents. Well, I don't want to go to your You're working at all this, every, and, and you're starting to so feel like a married couple, the only thing left is, is to have each other sexually like a, like a, like a married couple, see. So, so I usually tell the couple, here's a better way to do it. Why don't you allow a pastor or somebody uh, to wed you together? small informal wedding an office at the cross somewhere a park a gazebo starbucks it doesn't matter (laughs) get you the license let's have you pronounce your vows we'll have a couple close friends and then later you have a big old celebration why don't you do that why don't you do it right is that ideal i didn't say it's ideal It's a whole lot better than saying, no, we're waiting for, why are you waiting for two years? Well, I want to finish school, and she would go, well, man, you you should not have gotten that close. Finish school then. Leave her alone, crying out loud. Just crazy. These long engagements are just a formula for temptation most of us can't handle. Don't do it. I suppose it's time for me to talk about this now. Since I think many here, I don't know about most, many have violated God's moral code in the area of sex. Let's just face it. I think most have. What are you going to do? You're going to realize that no sexual sin is beyond the capacity of the God of all grace to forgive. You understand that? You're going to say, oh God, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for being whipped and humiliated and stripped naked and pierced through and hung on a cross and dismissed and stuck in a cold, uh, dark grave. Thank, oh, and by the way, thank you for rising up from all of that so that we can talk right now. Oh, God, thank you for cleansing me. Thank you for grace greater than all my sin. Thank you that though I've been unfaithful, you remain faithful. Thank you for casting all my sins, sexual and otherwise, behind your back. Thank you for separating my sins as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for adopting me into your family and seeing me to be a son and a daughter, not a reprobate, not a pervert. Thank you, O God for all that you've done. Thank you for seeing my sin 2,000 years ago and being willing to suffer and die for it then. Thank you for obtaining forgiveness for sin not yet even committed by me. Oh, God, thank you for being wedded to me. Thank you for never letting me go. Oh, God, fill me with your spirit. Keep me from doing it again. Strengthen me in the inner person of my heart. Put me in an accountability relationship. With more mature Christians, give me a heart for your word. Oh, God, I've tried doing things my way. My way stinks. I'm in trouble. Oh, God, let me do things your way. Put it, that's what you do. You understand what I'm saying? You have a lengthy conversation with Almighty God. You pour out your heart. You confess your sin, and you see him to be big enough, gracious enough, and merciful enough to wrap his arms around you just as if. You had not sinned. Now, that being said, don't don't let me make grace too easy. The consequence of most of our sin still remains. Do you know that? If you get an STD in the course of premarital sex, it's not going away. you got it. And that grieves God. So let's not make this cheap grace, sin all the more, and then just say, I'm sorry. No. say father you know best and now i'm going to believe you for it confess your sin he'll forgive it in christ jesus if you do things god's way from this day forward if i do things god's way from this day forward particularly in the area of our sexual expression we will be in the vast minority did you know that The surrounding culture will not accept us. So if that's what you're in for, I hope you like me, it's over. They will not accept you. If you do things God's way in the area of sexual morality, you're not going to fit in. ironic the very culture that encourages us at great pains to discipline our bodies you know lose weight exercise run jump do all kinds of stuff put on makeup and all the rest look like all these Hollywood the very culture that encourages us to do that discipline the body and exercise self-control and don't eat that double cheeseburger eat carrot sticks instead or whatever the deal is that very culture, at the same time, it's telling us to limit the body and, and discipline it. It's telling us, but you can indulge your body sexually any way you want. Can you tell me that that makes sense? And that's the stinking culture I want to fit in with? That's the culture whose approval I'm seeking, you're seeking? Don't do it. Don't do it. You know what's happening with the culture? You know what the culture's really after? It's easy. Love the culture, the world, the people out there after love. Our world is made up of people who long to be loved and accepted and understood. Our world consists of people starving for love, and our world consists of people looking for love in all the wrong places. Have you found it in Christ Jesus? Then look no further. Have you found the satisfaction of your longing in Christ Jesus? Have you found deliverance not just from the penalty of your sin but from purposelessness and rejection and, and uh, no mooring points? And, and have you found those things in being wedded to the Lord Jesus? Are you wedded to him by faith? He wishes to be your heavenly husband and make you his bride. Did you know that? Are you his bride? Do you know sex outside of the framework he gave is a misrepresentation of his covenant bond with us see if you have premarital sex uh, indiscriminate premarital sex of any kind extramarital sex um, it's a way of depicting to the world that maybe this Christ Jesus only wants to exploit his church he doesn't want to be wedded to it in an irreversible covenant bond where the two become one you see, that's what premarital sex, that's what extramarital sex does. I don't know if you knew this. Marriage is meant to reflect the willingness of transcendent deity to be wedded to us. And we adulterate it, we, 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 we distort it when we translate it into premarital and extramarital sex. We're, we're not showing to the world, oh, this Lord Jesus, the head of the church, he doesn't want to exploit us. He wants to enter into a covenant bond with us. Folks, here's the deal. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that we can demonstrate, uh, uh, show evidence of, give an example of what is the will of God. And what is the will of God? What's good? What's acceptable? What's perfect? If we embrace the same kind of sexuality the world is, how can we show them uh, a more good, better, more acceptable way uh, to handle our sexuality if we're engaged in the same stuff? And we are. And by the way, that's why we're losing our voice in the world. The world is saying, you claim this Jesus has a better way. (laughs) Hasn't worked for you. You're engaged in the same practices. Evangelistically, they no longer can hear what we're saying because our lives are drowning it out. Don't do it. Don't do it. The Lord Jesus loves you, and he loves me. He's our heavenly husband. He will not let us go. He's cast all our sin behind his back. He knows what's best for us. He has his eye upon us. He's chosen us. He's adopted us into his family. He said, you are a people from my own possession. I delight in you. He says, I've cast all your sin behind my back. I wish for you to reflect me, and then I'll receive glory. He said, you're my son. You're my daughter. You're no longer my adversary. He says, I've already prepared a place for you. Don't look for love in all the wrong places. Go to the Lord Jesus, loving, with a love that will not let us go. Folks. Folks if I could use this very down-to-earth expression, we have got to clean up our act. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. We have got to clean up our act. You can't just say, I'm a Christian. Prove it. The Lord says for Christians, come apart from them. Be separated. Be holy as I am holy. We have got to demonstrate a quality of living that is so attractive that they pursue us. Tell me, tell me, what have you found? But we're not living lives that are distinctively different than those out there, and they're not asking us questions anymore. Desperate times. Let's turn up the burner. Let's get radically sanctified. (laughs) Let's do things God's way. Let's show the world his way is good, acceptable, and perfect. Have you accepted the Lord Jesus? Forgive me. Nothing I said applies to you if you haven't. (laughs) Why don't you? It's like a wedding proposal he offered. He said, I'll take you. Will you have me? I see your sin. Frankly, you're not very attractive as a potential bride. And yet I have eyes to see the essence of who you are, especially as I remake you and conform you to my image. Will you acknowledge your sin, which has erected a barrier between you and me? Will you accept my proposal to have you, warts and all, just the way you are? Will you say, Lord Jesus forgive my sin. Come into my life, change me from the inside out. I would like to be wedded to you, make me your own. Have you done that? Have you have you done that? Why not now? Why not now? Lord Jesus, would you read the hearts of everyone here, including my own? Do you have us? Do we have you? Who here doesn't? Oh God, Would you wrap your arms around that one as only you can, stirring that person up? Would you accentuate that person's sense of distance from you? Would you create in that person's heart, even as we speak to you right now, a desire to be bound to you, united to becoming one flesh? Would you put it in that person's life to confess sin and to turn to you? As sin-bearer. Would you put it in that person's life to say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive my sin. Change me. Let's go through life hand in hand. From here on into eternity. Lord God, would you do that. For each person here who has yet, by faith, to be wedded to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.